0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. January twentieth, two 2009, newly inaugurated United States President Barack Obama declared a new era for American leadership in promoting peace on the planet.
1: Know that America is a friend of each nation and every man, woman, and child who seeks a future of peace and dignity. And we are ready to lead once more.
0: During the presidential campaign, he pointed to his early opposition to the war in Iraq while talking tough on other international fronts. He said it's important for the U.S. to talk to its enemies, and yet he's appointed a secretary of state in Hillary Clinton who challenged him on that philosophy during the primary campaign. What in Obama's background suggests that he would be an effective diplomat to bring warring factions together internationally or in Congress over key domestic issues? Today on Peace Talks Radio, we explore Barack Obama's potential as a peacemaker in global and domestic affairs. Stay tuned. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today. Whether it's the search for inner peace, or learning how to reduce conflict nonviolently with others in our homes, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today we speculate as to what kind of peacemaker the newly inaugurated 44th President of the United States, Barack Obama, might be. He mentioned peace and human rights several times in his inaugural address of January 20th, 2009.
1: We cannot help but believe that the old hatreds shall someday pass, that the lines of tribes shall soon dissolve, that as the world grows smaller, our common humanity shall reveal itself, and that America must play its role in ushering in a new era of peace.
0: During the campaign for president, his early opposition to the war in Iraq endeared him to many progressives, but he said he does not oppose all wars. While he said it's important to talk to our enemies, his Secretary of State Hillary Clinton challenged him on that philosophy during the primary campaign. Today on Peace Talks Radio, host Carol Boss and our guests will explore what in Obama's background, and in his earliest statements and moves as president, suggest about his potential as a peacemaker in global and domestic affairs. Later in the program, we'll broadcast some excerpts from a human rights conference put on by the Carter Center in Atlanta in December of 2008. The aim of that two-day conference was to draw up a list of recommendations for the new president related to the struggle for human rights around the world. We'll hear from former President Jimmy Carter and others and talk with Karen Ryan, director of the Carter Center's Human Rights Program, who organized and moderated the conference. Also ahead, we'll visit with Dr. Joseph Gerson, author and director of programs of the American Friends Service Committee in New England. But first, we talk with David Mendel, author of the best-selling book, Obama, From Promise to Power. As a former reporter for the Chicago Tribune, Mandel covered Obama's rise through politics and offers a close-up view of the man's skill set and history. From his home near Chicago, Mandel told Peace Talks radio host Carol Boss that he believes Obama would make an excellent diplomat because of his desire to hear all sides of an argument. Mandel said he's seen Obama's gift for brokering compromise both in state politics and in less weighty personal matters.
2: You know, I, I can just recall being in the campaign vehicle one weekend with him and his and his driver, and his driver and I were having this dispute over jazz. And, and his driver played trumpet in high school and thought that Miles Davis was not one of the premier trumpet players in the history of American jazz. And, and I was arguing that he had influenced the music to the extent that even though his technical skills weren't so great, that he, he was uh, a seminal figure. And uh, Obama stepped in the middle of us and, and, and said, well, you both have some points. And he didn't like to hear us sitting there arguing, even though it was over a very minor topic. So I think he has the kind of skills to bring people together. Now, that argument is not exactly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but he doesn't like conflict between people. And he really does like to try to to, to bridge those kinds of uh uh, disagreements. So, he has those skills. Now, I, I also think that he's not going to be able to take fo- a lot of foreign trips because he's he's going to have to write this economy. The American public is going to demand that. But uh, do, does he have those skills? Does he? Yes, he does. I, I think uh, as much as as much as anybody could in that in that kind of role.
3: David Mendel. Early in the presidential campaign, Obama was embraced as the anti-war candidate and this in part because of the speech he gave in 2002 in which he opposed the U.S. invasion of Iraq.
1: I don't oppose war in all circumstances, and when I look out over this crowd today, I know there is no shortage of patriots or patriotism. What I do oppose is
3: a dumb war. And he began his speech by saying he wasn't opposed to war in all circumstances, but he criticized the war with Iraq as a strategic mistake, and called it dumb and rash, and you write in your book that the decision of whether to speak at this rally was one of the biggest of his potential Senate bid, which was should he take a public stand on the likelihood of an Iraq war
2: <laughs> yeah that that uh, speech wound up, he had to he didn't he wasn 't given much time to decide whether he wanted to give that speech against the Iraq invasion. Um, He was called over a weekend by a very prominent progressive fundraiser in Chicago, Betty Lou Saltzman. Uh, A speaker had dropped out, and she was looking for someone else to speak at that, uh, another voice at that rally. And she knew from private conversations that he was against the Iraq invasion. He had not taken a public stand. Well, when the call came in uh, to speak at this rally, uh, he's thinking politically. Gee, I'm about to announce for the U.S. Senate. Should I go out and be against this war? And when he spoke to his main, uh, one of his main aides at that time, the, the aide said, "Well, if Betty Lou Saltzman is asking, you have to go because she is such an important figure in the progressive community, and she'd be worth some money to you in the Senate bid. You need. To, he's going to have to raise millions of dollars to to win the Senate race." so it became well yes he he should go out and speak to this crowd but what was he to say what was very affecting uh for a listener of the speech was that he did he was in front of a group of people who were who were a lot of them were, were straight out pacifists and he told them listen i'm not one of you i'm not necessarily a pacifist i i i believe there are some wars that need to be fought but this is uh the wrong war and quite frankly uh, it's been the most fortuitous speech he's ever given because uh, he wound up being the only candidate in the in the presidential contest who who, who was clean on the war, really, um, who had a viable uh, shot at it. Uh, Dennis Kucinich, I guess, uh, was another, but uh, who had a viable shot at the nomination. So that speech was just the gift that, that kept on giving for, for Barack Obama.
3: If you look at it even more incisively, is there anything else that you might uh, think of that um, that indicates his take on militarism?
2: Well, I think this is where he could disappoint some people on the left. He uh, is not a pacifist, and uh, he does seem to believe that, um, that uh, the military can solve some problems. In an interview uh, with the Chicago Tribune editorial board, when he was running for the U.S. Senate, he actually spoke about uh, Iran and a theocracy being formed there, and and said that we cannot, the country cannot afford to allow a nuclear Iran, if, especially if it's a theocracy. He doesn't believe that religious extremists should be in control of nuclear weapons, and he advocated for uh, strategic airstrikes to keep the, that from happening. And that's not the sign of someone who is, you know, doesn't believe that the military can, can uh, solve some matters.
3: This is Peace Talks Radio. I'm Carol Boss, and we're talking to David Mandel, author of Obama: From Promise to Power. Abraham Lincoln is one of the top three individuals most admired by Obama, and much was made in the press about him wanting to follow Lincoln's example and put political or ideological rivals in his cabinet and advisory positions um, for the purpose of challenging him. Do his appointees fit that model or are they more reflective of his turn to caution and calculation as you write in your book?
2: Yeah, I think it's the latter. He hasn't brought in Republican rivals uh, into (laughs) into his cabinet and ideological rivals, really. Uh, Most of them are pretty centrist, pretty uh, cautious people. And Obama is, while I don't believe in his heart of hearts, he's a centrist. He certainly, I think, comes from the left. Not far left, but but your traditional American liberal left. Um, But he has brought in a lot of centrists. He doesn't, he is not... Uh, like I said, a radical he 's not a flamethrower he is not going to go in and just shake the system from its very foundation he 's not a revolutionary uh he He may have had some thoughts of that as a younger man but but he is a very mainstream politician who has over the years especially here in chicago, operated uh pretty successfully from within the the political framework that 's that 's put together that 's already assembled. And I assume that's what he will do in in Washington as well. Um, I think the analogy to Abraham Lincoln, uh, well, I I think that's great imagery, the Lincoln uh, thing. And I I know Obama has has studied Abraham Lincoln. He studied Gandhi and he studied Martin Luther King. Um, But uh, I would think these days more on his, uh, he might be looking more at uh, briefing papers that resemble uh, the things that uh, FDR thought about and had to implement as far as public works programs and and a more aggressive national government to, to, to churn the economy.
3: There certainly seems to be a belief uh, among the many, many people that he can be more successful than past presidents at forming bipartisan coalitions. Can you tell us about the roots of this characteristic of his and perhaps provide us with an example of him doing just that successfully?
2: Yeah, he's not someone who I I quote someone in the book uh a, a close uh, an advocate in, in Chicago for the poor of saying that Obama is not fond of uh glorious defeats. He is not someone who is going to stand out and be uh give a give a big speech just to get some publicity around a topic and and watch the the legislation go down in flames. He uh is much more concentrated on, well, let's work this bill, uh, figure out a way that we can, we can change it, amend it, uh, and make it work for all parties involved so at least we get a piece of legislation passed. Um, but, uh, yeah, historically he has compromised on legislation uh, to, in order to, to get it passed, here in Illinois especially. His probably most successful piece of legislation in which he compromised some was uh, a bill here in Illinois where he reformed some uh, the death penalty. Uh, he worked with both prosecutors, law enforcement, and anti-death penalty advocates and got them all in the same room. And the ultimate result was a bill that uh, forced law enforcement agencies and prosecutors to uh, record confessions of or interrogations of folks who were charged with uh, capital crimes in which they could be put to death. And uh, the law enforcement community was very much against this bill at the beginning, uh, and uh, but now they've come over the years to find that it can be very helpful to them. That it, it actually solidifies some of their cases uh, when they go to trial. The folks on the other side really were pushing for this um, in all sorts of crimes, and so they all they they kind of compromised. And as he told me, the, the most successful way to get something like that past, is to bring everybody into the, to the same table and have everybody uh, feel like they have a voice and uh, have a say in the matter. And he's a big believer in, in, in that.
0: David Mendel is author of Obama, From Promise to Power, from HarperCollins. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today, Barack Obama's potential as a peacemaker And next we talked with Dr. Joseph Gerson, Ph.D., author, and director of programs of the American Friends Service Committee in New England. From his office in Cambridge, Massachusetts, he talked with Carol Boss about the labeling of Obama as the peace candidate during the campaign for president.
4: I think with with all elections, there's a lot of projection. You know, the candidate becomes uh, who we want uh, he or she to be. Uh, They may even encourage us in, in, in some of that. Uh, but during the campaign, I remember uh, President Obama said something that was really quite interesting uh, to me, anyhow, uh, which was, you need to listen to what I'm really saying. Uh, and this is where I am. Don't put false expectations on me. Uh, so, you know, in some areas, you know, he's, he's going to be uh, more inclined toward uh, negotiation and conflict resolution. Uh, in other areas, um, he's, you know, he's, he's going to increase the size of the U.S. military. That's, that's not what we need in this period of time. Uh, he's very much uh, a, a centrist politician, uh, and uh, and we need to, to recognize that. Uh, the other piece that's here, I think, is that uh, – and where we can – another source of hope, I would say, uh, is that, uh, you know, he's indicated that uh, he'll respond to pressure from below. Uh, and I think this means that, um, you know, civilian you know, popular uh, actions, uh, whether it's uh, the letters to, to Congress, the meetings with Congress um, – uh, You know, the church activities, uh, activities in synagogues and other congregations uh, can ultimately influence things that we do on the street, uh, may have a greater chance of influencing the direction of U.S. policy uh, than they did in the past.
3: So, Joseph, your work has taken you all over the world. And in an article you wrote, the political figures, activists, and diplomats from Asia, Europe, and the Arab world Whom I have been speaking with expect more continuity than change in U.S. foreign and military policies. Now, this was written just prior to the election, and it sounds like they did not have great expectations of Obama. So, for those who hold a vision of Obama here in America as an international peacemaker. Is it an illusion based on what you're hearing? I don't want to
4: say it's an illusion because there certainly is change. I mean, we've we've we've, we've moved out of the Ob- out of the um, Bush years. Uh, you do have a commitment uh, from Obama, for example, to uh, talk with, uh, with with Iran. Uh, he's indicated uh, the priority he's going to give to uh, trying to negotiate an Israeli-Palestinian settlement. Uh, so there are you know some very real and, and meaningful changes. He's also uh, indicated a, a commitment to, to taking uh, serious steps towards uh, nuclear disarmament. At the same time, there's there's tremendous um, uh, continuity. Uh, he's talking about actually increasing the size of the um, U.S. military. Uh, he's um, still has the military option uh, on the table in relationship to Iran. Uh, he's talked about actually escalating the war in and is in the the process of of escalating the war in Afghanistan with military threats against uh, uh, Pakistan, uh, and the list goes on. So I think we need to remember that we've we've elected a man who was endorsed by Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, our our former first warrior, Colin Powell. Uh, We haven't elected Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King.
3: Now, you've also written that Obama is bringing back many of the, and this is quote-unquote, Many of the arrogant militarist and interventionist veterans of the Clinton administration and the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Who in particular are you speaking about? Well, there's a
4: whole range of people. Uh, on the one hand, we've got the carryover of uh, Robert Gates at uh, the Pentagon, uh, who's you know, been working on the uh, escalation of the war in, in uh, Afghanistan and overseeing the attacks on, on Pakistan. Uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, was one who said that uh, we had to keep all options on the table, which would include the possibility of nuclear attack uh, against Iran. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Dennis Ross, uh, who's going to be overseeing much uh, in the Middle East, possibly including Iran, uh, and there are significant concerns that uh, he may be more inclined toward the military option uh, with Iran than than many others might be. Um, Richard Holbrook is not exactly a peacemaker, although he did uh, broker uh, the agreement in the former yugoslavia uh, so there's a, there's quite a range of, of people here um, I think one one way you can look at uh, understanding the meaning of the election uh, is that uh, while the system itself didn't fundamentally change, uh, what did happen was that uh, we were able to elect a very bright educated uh, skilled uh, uh, man of color. It shows that in under certain circumstances in our system it's changed to the degree. Uh, that uh, anyone with these kinds of skills and connections can rise to the top. Uh, But I think one of his um, mandates, ultimately, is to do what he can to consolidate uh, the U.S. uh, global imperium to the degree that's possible uh, after the wreckage uh, inflicted by the Bush and Cheney administration.
3: Now, Obama um, did say when there was concern raised about his appointments that he said he's bringing in people with strong international experience— and he essentially said that the ideals will flow down from him.
4: Well, again, you know, I don't, I don't think we can go with, with easy either ors uh, Clearly, um, he is going to be, as uh, George Bush once said, the decider. Uh, and he will ultimately frame uh, the options uh, that are pursued. Uh, but by the same token, you know, he's hired a number of or taken on a number of very powerful figures uh, who have uh, their own um, domains. Uh, they have their, their networks of contacts internationally. So it's it's not like one man has control of everything. I mean, he's he's more like the chairman of the board.
3: Joseph, in a recent article you write, we're being told that the US now has a second chance to assume its global leadership role. And you also write that we need to transform our culture to understand that we're not number one. Can you tell me more about that?
4: Well, you know, I think that people who haven't traveled outside the United States in in recent years don't understand quite how profoundly we've alienated the rest of the world. Um, You know, I have a memory of of, uh, being in in Brussels, maybe about 2003, 2004, with old friends. Uh, They have a daughter who's a a college student uh, studying to be an interpreter like her her father. Uh, And I remember her saying, you know, I'd love to come to the United States, uh, but I will not come to the United States while you have Bush in power. Uh, you know, there's a, a sense, and I, I don't want to overdraw the, the, the parallels here, uh, but there's a way in which the United States, you know, did a, operated a lot like Japan uh, during the 1930s and 40s, uh, launched aggressive wars, um, uh, created a near police state, if you think in terms of the violations of the Constitution, uh, the Patriot Act, uh, the eavesdropping, and, and all of that. Uh, and the rest of the world has looked somewhat aghast as, as we've, uh, you know, the idea that we, we were supposed to be the pinnacle of democracy. Uh, we were supposed to be uh, the pinnacle of um, uh, fair and um, uh, just international relations. Uh, and this country fought wars of choice. Uh, this country not only invaded Afghanistan uh, with no U.N. authorization, uh, but in what Kofi Annan said, uh, we fought and we launched an, an illegal war uh, against Iraq, uh, a war that we almost all knew at the time uh, wasn't justified uh, because there were no weapons of mass destruction there. Uh, and we all knew before that war was launched that there was no relationship between Saddam Hussein uh, and, uh, and, and al-Qaeda. Uh, so the United States has lost so much uh, in its standing in the world, and, and this will affect us. Uh, even as, for example, what happened to, to South Africa under apartheid. Uh, people in other countries don't want to come here. In fact, we've raised the immigration barriers to, to letting them in. Um, uh, there's disinclination to invest here. Uh, so all of these things will hurt uh, our economy uh, uh, and, and our children's futures. And I think with, with Obama, there were two books that I think are significant that were written during the um, the Bush years that sort of, uh, give a sense of, of of where a major part of the elite wanted to go. Uh, Joe Nye, who had been uh, number what two or three at, at the Pentagon in the first Clinton administration and a very very senior figure at uh, at Harvard and in uh, the U.S. international relations community, uh, wrote a book called "Soft Power," uh, uh, saying that look, a big part of the U.S. global influence and power uh, is not uh, not the military, uh, but our culture, uh, our universities. Uh, and, and, and we need to to um, value uh, this part of, of who we are and, and what our power is. And certainly we've heard this uh, from from Obama uh, and from the Democrats in, in recent years, even as on the side they're talking about increasing the size of the military uh, and, and possibilities of several wars. Uh, the second book, which is where I took that phrase from, uh, was by Zbigniew Brzezinski. Uh, and, and what Brzezinski does in, in his book, The Second Chance, is to look at how uh, all of our post-Cold War presidents uh, have blown opportunities uh, that we have, Uh, whether it was uh, the the first George Bush, uh, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, or or W. himself, uh, and says we essentially have one more opportunity uh, to demonstrate that we are the uh, country that we say we want to be, that we've advertised ourselves to the rest of the world as, and in doing so, we can reconsolidate much of our power. I have to say that we we get lost in our own uh, rhetoric. We get lost in our own discourse within the United States, maybe because of the two oceans that are around us. Uh, But we don't listen enough to what people in other countries are saying and how they're perceiving us. And I think one thing that that we haven't mentioned here, but which I think is potentially a long-term problem, uh, is uh, President Obama has not said that he will withdraw all U.S. forces from Iraq. Uh, What he said is that... He'll withdraw all combat forces uh, from Iraq uh, and uh, talking about keeping residual U.S. forces uh, in, in Iraq indefinitely. Uh, how many, we don't know, but the most of the studies I've been hearing are on the orders of uh, 30,000 to 70,000, as say up to half the, 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 the forces in, in Iraq that are there as we're speaking today. Um, this is not going to do well for the United States. Uh, we, we should remember that one of the precipitating causes of the 9-11 tax uh, was that the U.S. had military bases uh, very close to Mecca and Medina, one of the holiest sites of Islam. Uh, we need to move toward a policy, uh, actually the policy that was uh, used in the Cold War, uh, the idea of common security, uh, the idea that uh, as individuals uh, or as nations, we can't be secure uh, if, if others who, uh, or perhaps our rivals, our neighbors, feel insecure, that will take actions that are going to make the other side uh, feel insecure and, and and lead to a rise in conflict. I don't think that Obama is, is there yet, uh, and I think uh, all of us are going to have to help him get there.
3: Joseph Gerson, throughout um, his campaign, Obama made the point that creating the change he promised was something we all had to take a responsibility for. How can you envision our listeners becoming engaged and playing a role in this participatory approach?
4: Well, you know, what he said is essentially the essence of democracy. Uh, You don't have democracy unless you use it. Uh, And democracy is not just going out to vote every two years or every four years. Uh, So I think it's a range range of activities. Uh, We need to do a lot of self-education, uh, whether it's individually following stories closely in the press or, or on the internet, um, I just had a call a little while ago from uh, a group of people in Vermont. You know, just a community-based group uh, wanting to do a program about Afghanistan. I mean, there are people in in states across the country uh, who have expertise in different areas. Um, you know, most of them are amenable to sharing what they know and engaging uh, with 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 the with wider community. We need to do this more. Uh, democracy isn't something you inherit. It's something you practice.
3: How about um, peace advocates who supported him? Uh, what would you say about um, being able to shift mm-hmm. their role mm-hmm. into one of watchdog?
4: Well, you know, during the election campaign, uh, Bill Fletcher, who is a national uh, labor leader, uh, has been a civil rights activist and just a really wonderful person, um, wrote a piece in which he called for critical support of Obama. And, and you know, I, I think that, you know, that's a realistic uh, way of, of looking at things. You know, on the one hand, I have to say sometimes I'm a little bit concerned. he uh, Obama raised hopes among young people uh, so high. Uh, and, you know, with his appointments and his, his first moves, you know, has, has led people to be um, uh, you know, less enthralled uh, with the directions that he's going. And my hope is that it doesn't, uh, you know, the, the the failure to reach nirvana here uh, doesn't so disillusion young people who invested their hopes uh, that they pull out of um, uh, political process and and, and sort of uh, give up. Uh, you know, I think we I think we just need to to look at the world clearly, uh, recognize uh, the, the word I've used is paradox uh, that in many ways things will be better, uh, but other things are going to be tough. And, and you don't suspend your, your judgments. You don't suspend your commitments to democracy or the affirmation of life uh, because things are better in one way, but in the other way, we're just going to ignore them. That doesn't, that doesn't work.
0: That's Dr. Joseph Gerson, author and director of programs of the American Friends Service Committee in New England. For links to some of Dr. Gerson's essays, as well as to read an excerpt from David Mendel's book, Obama, From Promise to Power, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. Coming up in the second part of our program, former President Jimmy Carter and other human rights advocates prepare a to do list for the Obama administration. We'll talk with Karen Ryan from the Carter Center right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today's program is considering the peacemaking potential of the recently inaugurated 44th U.S. President Barack Obama.
1: Our founding fathers faced with perils that we can scarcely imagine. Drafted a charter to assure the rule of law and the rights of man. A charter expanded by the blood of generations. Those ideals still light the world and we will not give them up for expedience's sake.
0: For some, a commitment to peacemaking begins with a commitment to human rights. That's certainly the point of view of the 39th president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, who was sitting not far from Barack Obama when he delivered his inaugural address in January of 2009. The Carter Center in Atlanta has made universal human rights one of the cornerstones of its work for over 25 years. In December of 2008, a two-day conference held there had as its aim to draw up a list of recommendations for the new president related to the struggle for human rights around the world. Former President Jimmy Carter anchored the conference, and we have with us on the line from the Carter Center in Atlanta, Karen Ryan, director of the Carter Center's human rights program. She organized and moderated the conference. Ms. Ryan, thanks for making time for us today. It's my pleasure. The December 2nd and 3rd, 2008 conference that you held there at the Carter Center gathered human rights leaders from around the world to develop recommendations for the Barack Obama administration regarding human rights. And I want to start by playing former President Jimmy Carter's summary statement at the closing session and then ask you for some comments and then we'll also hear highlights from some of the other panelists at that closing session. But first here's former President and Nobel Peace Prize winner Jimmy Carter.
5: What can we do in the next year and the succeeding years to restore America as a worldwide recognized champion of human rights. And there are a lot of things we need to do, but we'll be starting out, obviously, with the closing of Guantanamo and the basic announcement that our country will adhere to international conventions that protect human rights and for which we have in the past been champions. Those are the kind of things we'll do, and I'm sure that by the time you uh, depart from here this evening, you'll have maybe a clearer idea of what the United States must do to restore our reputation as a champion of human rights. Which we have learned a lot about from these people who have come from troubled countries, whose leaders have in the past been restrained from persecution by threatened intercession or example set by Washington. And in the last eight years, we've seen these oppressors now feel relieved of any obligation to follow the United States leadership because some of their perpetrations of crimes have been derived from the leadership established in Washington. So it's a profound change that's going to take place for which we are truly grateful and we feel confident that it will be accomplished.
0: Karen Ryan, President Carter suggested that there have been nations that have felt less pressure to comply with human rights guidelines in recent years and you had witnesses to this testify at this conference. What's one telling example of that happening in another country?
6: Well, Egypt would be a a great example. We had with us uh, Saad Edin Ibrahim, who is a well-known dissident in Egypt who has been for 40 years pushing for more openness, for free elections, for the protection of human rights, for the elimination of torture in Egypt. And early in the Bush administration, Saad had been arrested for writing a report that was critical of Egyptian elections. And uh, U.S. pressure was brought to bear and international pressure. In fact, President Carter had also weighed in with the Egyptian government during that time, 2001, 2002, when Saad was arrested. And because of – mostly, I think, because of very strong U.S. pressure, including a threat to withdraw uh, uh, aid money, financial aid to Egypt – was used as leverage to uh, uh, against the Mubarak regime to release Saad from prison. He had been sentenced to seven years hard labor simply for writing a report, uh, and he was released. Um, but uh, since that time, uh, since America's influence has diminished um, in this way, in many ways in the Middle East and other parts of the world, um, you have other cases like Ayman Nur, the dissident um, who tried to run for president when there were elections that the Egyptian government claimed were going to be more open. Uh, This man, Ayman Nur, uh, was the most successful candidate, uh, received a good percentage of the vote, but was arrested and is still in prison. And the United States and other and the international community has proven uh, incapable of putting meaningful pressure on the Egyptian government. But I should clarify, this is not the United States' responsibility. This is the Egyptian government's job to open up and to allow free elections. I'm not trying to displace blame here. Uh, What I am trying to do is to just show how our influence has weakened and, uh, you know, how it might change.
0: Well, the Bush White House did protest in the uh, Mubarak election situation that you just mentioned. But Mm -hmm. what actually could have made more of a difference—
6: Well, this is a a larger question, and I I believe this to be true because we've heard this from so many people uh, uh, throughout the world, that the United States government's uh, influence has weakened uh, very generally. George H.W. Bush in uh, the late uh, 1980s and early 90s set a goal of eliminating torture in the world. Um, that was seen as what as a high uh, objective for the United States. We were the leader. So when you are in the lead, and suddenly your your credibility, your legitimacy as a power, is sapped, then how effective can you be really in influencing other countries?
0: Uh, Saad Ibrahim was on your final panel there and he suggested that administrations can even have good intentions to press a country like Egypt to be mindful of human rights, but still things don't improve. And I thought it was interesting as he described how, in his view, uh, Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak, who's been president for 28 years since Anwar Shadat was assassinated, has avoided adherence to human rights principles. Let let me play that for the folks.
7: The uh, Egyptian regime has become very skillful in outmaneuvering administrations in democratic countries. Somebody who has been in power for 28 years. How many American presidents has he outworn and outlived? So he has learned the art of telling every democratic country that puts pressure, he you're sure, we will do it. It will just take time. Just give us four or five years (laughs) to get out. Well, in four or five years, an American president or a British prime minister or a French or a German is out of office. And the new one comes. And he does the same thing. This is one. So (laughs) outmanoeuvring, outplaying, outflanking all of this pressure by foreign powers or by democracies who are helping him. But the second thing is a lack of clear vision on the side of American administration.
0: That's exiled Egyptian human rights defender Saad Ibrahim, and he fears retribution for criticizing Hosni Mubarak if he were to return to Cairo, as, as you explained earlier, Karen Ryan, Karen Ryan's director of the Carter Center's human rights program did what Mr. Ibrahim say ring true to you about how some leaders skate around the call for human rights?
6: You know, absolutely. Um, What you learn in dealing with um, regimes that are very entrenched is that they are usually more dedicated than we are to um, pushing them on the things that we think they need to do. Um, You have many, many leaders worldwide who have been there. Uh, Look at Robert Mugabe. I mean... Th- those individuals are far more dedicated to the goal of staying in power than we are to, uh, to pushing them uh, towards greater openness. And so I think our challenge really is to figure out um, how to change the incentives, how to make sure that the pressure is felt by them, and how, and how to demand more pressure. And I think for the United States to be able to do that, it has to act multilaterally uh now especially now the united states really cannot uh, uh have the kind of influence it once did on a unilateral basis it can do some but it really needs to act in concert with other countries that's going to that's what it's going to take to to dislodge some of these uh these truly bad guys
0: and does that happen with the turn of a dime when the obama administration takes power
6: no, I think that it would be wrong to assume that simply by having uh, a new president take over, no matter how popular he is, uh, I think there's this tremendously high expectation um, that uh, Obama will be able to just sort of push the reset button and, and have wonderful, happy conversations with, with all of these guys who, um, you know, they're, they're, they have the levers of power. Um, And so he's going to have to uh, be very smart, which we know he is. Um, And so I have high hopes, but I also think um, we have to have our um, eye on the long term. And in order to do that, we have to have a plan. Barack Obama will be able to come in and begin consulting with regional partners, with uh, uh, partners from all over the world, from NGOs who have a lot of knowledge about what's happening on the ground to develop long-term strategies. You're
0: listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Our guest is Karen Ryan, who's the Human Rights Director for the Carter Center. She's speaking to us from her office in Atlanta, Georgia. The Carter Center sponsored a conference in December of 2008 designed to develop recommendations for the Barack Obama administration regarding human rights. Karen Ryan, uh, Larry Cox, the National Director of Amnesty International, was on your final panel, too, at this Human Rights Conference. He issued a challenge to Americans to become more engaged. Let's listen to some of his comments.
8: One of the things that President Carter did, which was, I think you can't overstate the importance of it, is that he said this, human rights is central to who we are as Americans. It's central to U.S. foreign policy. It's central to what we do. Um, You know, the Bush administration has made human rights something which, uh, the way they saw it, represented a small, special interest, as if the rights of the human race Are a special interest, you know, maybe we'll take into account, but there are other special, you know, there are other special interests, you know, like uh, Halliburton or some other special interest. (laughs) We got to balance, you know, human rights with Halliburton. I don't know. You know, they're just one of these. We have to begin to convince people that human rights is about them. It's about every human being on the planet. Uh, it's not a special interest. It should be the core interest. Uh, and I think uh, we've got to get people involved in, in making their voices heard and believing uh, that their voices can make a difference. Because it, there are things happening where if we could mobilize more voices, uh, suffering would stop. And, and it's going on because we haven't yet convinced people that they can. make We've had a government convincing people you can't make a difference for eight years. Now we've got to get convincing people, no, you can make a difference. And one of the reasons people were excited, so, I'm sorry to go on, but one of the reasons people were so excited about Obama, I think, it's not just Obama, it was the crowds they saw behind Obama. Yeah. It was the hundreds of thousands of people that were coming out. I saw pictures in this city of people lined up to vote like I'd never seen in my lifetime. And the whole world saw that. So it wasn't just Obama, it was the American people being mobilized, moving, getting involved again caring, feeling that they could make a difference. You know, yes, we can. Yes, we can. That was the mantra. So I think if we can keep that up and build on it, we can once again demonstrate that we can change the world. Right on.
0: <laughs> Amnesty International's Larry Cox. Karen Ryan at the Carter Center. What does that more engaged citizenry look like to you? How would you challenge our listeners to play a part in improving the human rights picture in the world?
6: Uh, what I would love to see would be for people to become informed. Um, and the way we've been talking about it is really examining America's moral footprint. One thing that people can do is learn about what happened. Um, one of the ideas that we talked about at our conference was that there should be a nine eleven 11 style uh, commission to um, investigate how the United States became involved in torture and became involved in legitimizing torture. It's very important for our public to have to deal with this, to really confront it, to own up to it, um, and to to face the possibility that um, these were crimes that were committed. And then uh, an engaged citizenry would mean that uh, people can take direct action. They can communicate with their member of Congress. They can communicate with the administration Uh, through petitions, through uh, uh, organizing religious congregations. uh, And there's a whole organization that that popped up over this called the National Religious Campaign Against Torture that is seeking to get religious congregations involved in uh, objecting to U.S.-sponsored torture. Um, Amnesty International has its first 100 days campaign that people can become involved in through the Amnesty website of communicating with Congress, communicating with the new president.
0: What we're talking about does seem a bit overwhelming, I think, to the person standing in their kitchen right now listening to our program. Let me press you a little bit more on that. Like, what can I really do about human rights in Egypt or Zimbabwe?
6: Well, I understand that it may seem overwhelming, but you can think about some other very successful campaigns um, in recent memory. Uh, There was the anti-apartheid campaign in South Africa that led to enormous public pressure to... Uh, divest and to cut off all types of engagement with the racist regime in in South Africa that had consequences. This pushed the political leaders to uh, to to go toward political reform that led to um, the abolition of apartheid. That's not insignificant. Um, you a rec- there was a more recent campaign to raise awareness about the the unfolding genocide in Darfur. This was some dedicated activists, some Internet-savvy groups, some religious organizations that combined their efforts that pushed for greater attention on the situation in Darfur, which, which had consequences. Um, so I think it may seem overwhelming, but I think one of the keys uh, for the American public is to understand that there are these amazingly courageous human rights defenders in all of these countries um, that would love to have the direct and indirect support of the American public. People can get very directly involved in these campaigns to stand up for people who are being persecuted.
0: We're talking with Karen Ryan. She's director of the Carter Center's Human Rights Program. We've been talking with others on this particular program about the hopes placed on Barack Obama as a peacemaker, a negotiator, a leader, more interested in diplomacy. And we've heard skeptics who point to some of his appointees and and wonder whether things will change that much. Are you hopeful? And if so, tell us why. What does Barack Obama show you that makes you think something might change?
6: Well, I'll give you a personal story. Uh, We, after our um, conference every year... Um, We traveled to Washington, D.C. with with human rights defenders from different countries for them to meet with members of Congress, with members of the administration, State Department. And twice, uh, Barack Obama, as a senator, met uh, human rights defenders from different countries and had extremely comprehensive discussions with them, and he was excellent. He he gets the issues. One uh, particular story was there was a human rights activist from Kenya Uh, that was in our group. And he said to her, look, I'm coming to Kenya in um, a few weeks or a couple months. Let's uh, get together while I'm in Nairobi, and I'd like to to hear your views about the situation in Kenya. And so sure enough, he followed up with that. And not only did he communicate with her when he was in Nairobi, he included her in many of his official meetings as a civil society representative. And his uh, approach to it was, you know, it's Kenyan civil society that will help solve the challenges facing Kenya. It's not the United States government, etc. So what do the Kenyan uh, human rights activists and democracy activists have to say about the issue of corruption or uh, the issue of the constitutional reform? That's what matters. So his approach to that problem convinced me that this is, you know, he, he's really a community organizer at heart. And so he understands that democracy and human rights has to come from below. It has to come from the grassroots. It has to come from the people. And, it, and insofar as the United States can support those grassroots efforts, that's how he's going to approach it. So that's very heartening to me. And I think uh, with regard to um, his appointments, um, you know, I, I think experience has a lot to offer. Uh, when, when people have experience in government, that's not a bad thing. I think he made it very clear that change will come from the top. It will come from him. And I, I can definitely see um, that he will uh, be very much engaged in the discussions of nuts and bolts and will have his stamp on his policies. So that doesn't really worry me.
0: And what if Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State from a human rights standpoint?
6: Well, Hillary Clinton, I was in Beijing in 1995 when she delivered her excellent speech on the rights of women, um, and I think she's extremely talented. She's so smart, and she's a quick study, and she's, she knows many leaders already. I, I think she'll be fantastic, um, and I think uh, we met her as well with our group of human rights defenders And she uh, was very engaged with them discussing the situation in Pakistan and the Congo. Um, So I I have no doubt that she's going to do an excellent job.
0: In our last moments here, let's touch on a few more of the specific recommendations mentioned by President Carter. Let me just ask you to say a few words to help us understand how certain suggested changes on these fronts would be possible for a new administration, what difference it could make. Uh, President Carter said, stop supporting allies who violate human rights.
6: Well, I'm glad you asked about this question, because how President Obama engages with our uh, both our allies and in all of our bilateral relationships is going to be a key to this. Um, I learned about when I started here at the Carter Center. I, over the years, have learned, uh, just through reading old minutes of conversations from the archives between President Carter when he was president and different heads of state, that the human rights issue was actually personal for him. When he would speak with Foreign Minister Gromyko of the Soviet Union or Latin American heads of state, uh, you know, the protection of dissidents, not executing dissidents, uh, uh, allowing political space, were personally important to him. Um, there's one example where, in, in a conversation with Gromyko and, and later with um, and with Brezhnev, he insisted that the Soviet Union allow Soviet Jews to emigrate. And so, the first year when he took office, there were only a couple of hundred of Jews that were allowed to emigrate. Uh, you know, this was a highly persecuted population. By the end of the, that next year, fifty thousand. Jews were allowed to emigrate. And this was because he insisted on it. Um, so President Obama can do a lot in his private conversations with heads of state, and that includes every country, from Russia to China, which are particularly tough, but also in our relations in Africa, in the Middle East. If he truly Uh, uh, believes that this is an essential part of our relationship, that we've got to stand up for those who are really struggling for human rights, then it will matter. He will save lives. He will help open the political space. um, And it will have an impact.
0: Do you think he feels
6: that way? I do think he feels. I know he feels that way. I know that this is... Uh, well, I, don't, I can't predict how those meetings will go and how much of a, of a personal emphasis President Obama will place on that, but I know he understands the issue. Um, the difference will be, I think what's particularly challenged for President Obama, will be to restore those dialogues in an atmosphere of mutual respect. We have to understand that other countries have their own nationalisms, They have their own strategic objectives. And if the United States president can somehow communicate this commitment to rights and democracy and freedom in a way that does not inflame the paranoid nationalism that exists in many places, um, that is a very careful line that I hope the president will walk with that in mind.
0: It's a very nuanced thing.
6: It is a very nuanced thing. And I I, I think if, if any politician I've ever seen ha- is capable of it, it's Barack Obama. Okay.
0: President Carter also said, support the United Nations, he said, for a change. He says it's been condemned, derogated, and abandoned. So what's your hope on that front? What do you believe is possible, and how does that happen?
6: Well— For the American public, the United Nations appears to be some dysfunctional, bloated bureaucracy. They don't understand what it means in the world, and and that's fair. Uh, It is ineffective in a lot of ways. Uh, But it's very important for people to understand that the United Nations really is the last saving grace for many, many people around the world. The UN must become the principal forum uh, where human rights violations are documented and reported and remedied. We are beyond the days when one any one government can be the sort of the global good guy, the global spokesperson for the human rights cause. Um, and so it's essential that the U.N. become the principal forum. It, you know, maybe f- for the American public it would be worth- worthwhile thinking about if the U.N. gets better at human rights, it will benefit every country, including us.
0: Karen Ryan, a moment ago you said we benefit when human rights abuses are dealt with in a far off country. And I'm wondering if we could finish by having you make the connection uh, to the idea of peacemaking, how uh, attention to these issues uh, makes a difference for world peace or peace in their own lives.
6: Let me give you one example of Pakistan. I mean, if there is a spot on the planet that has people the most worried, it's South Asia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, now with the, the attacks in India. There's suddenly this urgency about what to do. So, so obviously the issue of terrorism in South Asia has suddenly catapulted itself to the top uh, of our agenda, and rightfully so. So what do we do about it? What does human rights have to do with it? Uh, During the session, someone asked Hina Jelani, a a human rights lawyer from Pakistan, what do you do about dangerous terrorists? How do you deal with them in a way that's consistent with human rights? And does that even make sense in the age of terrorism? Um, Shouldn't you just lock people up and throw away the key? And she said, you know, part of the solution is winning the hearts and minds of the people. Everybody knows that. So how do you do that? If you start locking up people and throwing away the key, What you do is you alienate the public at large. The best way to deal with terrorists is to put them on trial, put them in a court of law where their crimes against women, their crimes against society will be exposed to the public in a legitimate forum. People will reject the terrorists. People have to uh, change their minds about who's the good guys and who's the bad guys in these cases. Um, And the only way to do that is for institutions to work, for the courts to work, for those people who have nothing but violence to offer. They must be exposed. But the way to expose them is not to, you know, shove people out into dark prisons, uh, you know, and, and sort of cast a wide net and hope that you get a lot of bad guys, which is what's been happening. The way to do it is to make sure that individuals who offer nothing but violence are held to account by society at large. That's what human rights means. The society at large will reject terror and they will embrace peace and they will embrace the rights of all. And these things are absolutely interlinked.
0: Karen Ryan is director of the Carter Center's Human Rights Program. She spoke to us from the Carter Center in Atlanta, Georgia. For links to the Carter Center website where you can hear highlights from the Human Rights Conference and to connect to other resources from today's program, you can go to our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com where you can hear this program again, order a CD, sign up for a free podcast, or our monthly newsletter. You can actually hear all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution going back to 2003. It's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to support the nonprofit work of Good Radio Shows Incorporated, which produces this program and protects some airtime and web space for talk about peacemaking. Part of our costs are supported by people just like you making small contributions. So big or small, go to peacetalksradio.com and follow the link to Contribute to do your part. We also have support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD project at peacetales.org. Thanks also to KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Our theme was written and performed by Ali Adelman. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for doing your part to support Peace Talks Radio.